Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, the topic we are going to discuss today will get more hate mail than virtually any other topic we discuss. And it's not even an essential of the faith. And it's not even about whether or not Christianity is true. The topic is God's sovereignty versus human responsibility, Calvinism or not. And so we're going to talk about this with my friend Leighton Flowers. Uh, Leighton, you have an entire ministry related to this topic. You have Soteriology 101, which is a great YouTube channel where you cover all these issues. Give our, our viewers and our listeners a little background. How did you even get into this? Yeah, I, I was a Calvinist for 10 years and slowly came out of Calvinism through study. Okay. Uh, ended up writing my dissertation when I was doing my doctoral work at New Orleans on this topic. And was teaching on the, uh, on it at, at, at Dallas Baptist, and a lot of the students just lit up when I started talking about this, just like right. fireworks, like you said, a lot of hate mail, a lot of yeah. a lot of interest in this topic. And so, uh, one of the students suggested uh, that we do a podcast on it, or that I start a podcast. I said, "Well, what's that? How do you do that?" Back back in the day, I didn't okay. even know how to do that, so I began to YouTube how to do podcasts, and just one thing led to another. Uh, that's why it's called Sociology One Hundred and One because it was birthed out of a actual right. One Hundred and One course. And uh, one thing led to another, and it began to be very popular. Um, a lot of people think that's all I do. It's uh -huh. it's really not. Uh, uh -huh. That's only you know since 2014 that I've been doing. That's this. what they see, though. Right. Yeah. That's what okay. they see. Yeah. And so I, I'm the director of evangelism and apologetics for Texas Baptist. So most of my work is in winning the lost right. and on the essentials of the faith and okay. apologetics. Um, and so hiring people like you to come to our conferences in the state of Texas and other places to train people uh, for uh, good doing good apologetics and, and, and uh, evangelizing the world. So what is your doctrine in? My doctorate is, my, 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 my focus was on this topic it of was. sociology. Okay. Yes. Right. And right. so because it was such a hot button topic for me, I went through a church split over the issue. I mean, it was yeah. pretty passionate for me. And that's, uh, that's why I think I was driven to kind of go deeper into the yeah. topic and to the issue. Uh, I agree with you. It's a, it's a secondary matter. Um, I, I have Calvinists who are friends of mine, who are brothers, who I love dearly, yeah. sisters that I love dearly, family members that I love dearly that lean that direction. I think they're wrong, mm -hmm. but that's okay. We can yeah. still love each other. Um, th there's people who are wrong about politics too, but All I still right. can love them and have a uh, meal with them and work, worship Well, not with really. Them. What, are you yeah. crazy? Come on. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so um, I, I started the podcast because I just really saw a vacuum on the internet, especially of non-Calvinistic scholars and resources because the Calvinists are, let's just face it, they're a lot better at telling people what they believe yeah. and why they believe what they believe than non-Calvinists have been over the last 20, 30 years since the inception of the internet. So I really thought there needed to be more information out there online helping people who struggle with this issue. What were some of the uh, reasons originally you thought Calvinism was true? Of course. Well, I, I grew up in 
a kind of a whosoever will kind of Baptist church, typical Baptist church that really didn't teach a doctrine of predestination or election at all, just didn't talk about that topic. And so I came out of really ignorance of the topic, just always believing the basics of, you know, God loves everybody and anybody can be saved if you believe and follow Jesus, kind of a, a theology. And when I was 19 uh, in college, um, I was introduced to John MacArthur, mm-hmm. was given a book by him, by a mentor friend who's still a very good friend of mine who's still a Calvinist. Mm-hmm. And he gave me a book by MacArthur. I read the entire thing while I was on a mission trip in Belarus and slowly began to just understand what Calvinism was. And so I was introduced to how you interpret Ephesians 1, for example, or Romans 9, mm-hmm. which are hot button mm-hmm. uh, you know, passages in this debate. I learned for the very first time how to interpret them from a Calvinist. Okay. And so that just seemed like that must be the only real interpretive you know, option because right. that's what was introduced to me first. And so I, I pretty much just adopted the entire worldview because that was the worldview that was first introduced to me and, and became very uh, insistent upon trying to convert others because there was a part of me that was like, why haven't I been taught this all my life? Why, why isn't the church talking about this? And so I began, even as a young college student, talking to a lot of my friends and converting a lot of my friends into Calvinism. Uh, and from what I've seen looking back over my lifetime, a lot of that was happening in a lot of places. The, that resurging of Calvinism was really taking place in the uh, mid-90s, uh, early 2000s. Um, and, and we see a lot of the influence. I went to uh, school with Matt Chandler, for example. Okay. I helped to convince him of the L of limited right, <laughs> atonement because that's the one he was hung up on uh, in the student center. We were debating with a few other guys, Calvinist guys, and so it, it's just one of those things that this this generation has experienced a real growth and resurging of Calvinism, and having come back out of it after coming into it. I just felt like it needed to be addressed and at least people to understand both sides of, of the issue. For our viewers who may not be completely familiar, I mean, they know basically what Calvinism is, sure. but if you had to put a definition on it, uh, how would you describe it? Are you going through Tulip or what's your... Yeah, well, okay. even, even when John Piper and Matt Chandler had that interview online on oh. YouTube, it's still there. Okay. He, he asked Matt Chandler, what is Calvinism? Okay. What is that? And he says, it, it's Tulip. I mean, it's the, that, that, that that's just the acrostic or the way in which we... Uh, remember it. Go through um, it quickly for yeah, our audience. T stands for total depravity, which is basically that you're born uh, separated due to your sin. Mm-hmm. But it's a little more than that on the Calvinist side, because we could all agree that we're right. separated due to our sin, that we're sinners, we're fallen. But the Calvinist goes a step further and to say what R.C. Sproul says, mm-hmm. we're, we're totally morally unable to respond mm-hmm. positively to even the gospel. We can't respond positively to the work of God unless we've been unconditionally elected, which is the you. And, and that means that you were chosen unilaterally before you were ever born. Calvinists don't know why one person was chosen over another. They, mm-hmm. they admit that that's just a mystery, that God mm-hmm. unilaterally picks some people and not others. It seems arbitrary. Some Calvinists will push back on that word um, because of its negative connotation. But even Jonathan Edwards, Calvin himself, used the word arbitrary mm-hmm. um, because it is the, the will of the arbiter. And he unilaterally makes this choice before you're ever born. And in fact, you could even argue that he created you for that end. He created you to be a believer or he created you to be a reprobate mm-hmm. on Calvinism. The L stands for limited atonement, which means that Christ didn't come to die for the sins of the world. He came to die for the sins of his elect, those he's unconditionally chosen. The I stands for irresistible grace, that if he's chosen you, then he's going to change your very ontological nature to make you want him. So you're born, according to the T, unable to want him because your desires, you would never want him unless he's picked you and irresistibly graces you, which is what some refer to as regeneration, um, that he makes you alive in order that you can see the truth of his beauty and that you will certainly come to him. 
Um, and so the Calvinists are not saying that he's dragging people, kicking and screaming into heaven. They're, they're saying, no, no, he changes your very desires okay. where you want to come willingly. And then perseverance, uh, the P, is the concept and idea that if he changes you, if he's truly elected you and changed you, then you'll stay changed. You won't, you won't renege. You won't go back on uh, what he's done for you because he's not, uh, you would never leave something if he's the one who's ultimately effectually caused you to come to it. And so you will absolutely persevere if he's the one, if you're, if you're truly elect. Now, in your view, are any of these attributes or uh, descriptions of Calvinism, the T, the U, the L, the I, and the P, are they correct as defined by Calvinists, or do they all of them need some modification? All of them need modification. That's why you'll hear some Cal, some modified Calvinists yeah. say, "I'm a two pointer, I'm a three pointer." Yeah. Well, and I say, "Well, technically, if you're defining those points the way the Calvinist does, they all kind of hang or fall together." Okay. And if you're you'd have to alter some aspect of the definition. The the P, for example, would be the closest one that I would hold to because. Most of us as Southern Baptists would believe in once saved, always saved, or the eternal security concept. I have some issues with some of the vernacular there, and we talk about that on the podcast regularly. And there are people who, who side with me on almost every area except that one because it, it sounds too Calvinistic for some, and I understand that, and I understand some of their arguments for it. But that would be the closest one of all the, the, the five that I would hold to as a Southern Baptist at least. It's a big topic. We obviously can't cover all of this here in this one podcast, but let's just talk a little bit about the scriptures, which do appear to talk about God uh, making choices almost for us, seeming arbitrary choices. Let's just go to Romans 9 for just a second. We can talk about Romans 9, uh, and again, we can't read the whole passage, uh, but uh, we're in Romans 9. Let's see. uh, There's the passage, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. What shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy, uh, on and on and on. How how would you respond to such a... it seems, it seems kind of fatalistic, right? Yeah, and and, and I'll, I mean, to be frank, I mean, when, uh, when we're, be, yeah, I'll you'll be, be frank, yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll just be forthright, you be uh-huh, frank. Uh-huh. Um, when, when I was being introduced to Calvinism for the first time and, and explained Calvinism and then taken to Romans 9, I was like, who can argue with that? Right, I mean, sure. it's just obvious. Yeah. Who are you but, to talk yeah. back to God? <laughs> to he also says that in there. Right, yeah. and yeah. so it, it, it starts with presuppositions, right. and what presuppositions are you holding when you walk into the verse? And so w- once you address those presuppositions, like take off the lenses, so to speak, and you step away and you and you address what we believe Paul is actually addressing in his context, then it, it makes sense from both sides. And that's that's the hard thing. It's very difficult to see something from a different angle. I, I use the illustration of the bleaks, the duck and the rabbit, you know, that's both right. a duck and a rabbit when you look at it. And it's not really until you can see both pictures that you can argue which of these two pictures is Paul really attempting to explain here? And if you've only seen the duck all your life and somebody else is coming along and say, no, it's really a rabbit, then they sound like a heretic. You know, they sound like, well, you're just, you're just not honest with the yeah, text. Yeah. That's what the text and, says. Yeah, that's Come on. obvious. What yeah, are you yeah, just yeah, blind? Yeah. Well, no, I'm, I'm coming from a different presupposition than you are. And so what I believe Paul is addressing is the nation of Israel and their hardening. The nation of Israel has become hardened mm-hmm. 
Israel is reflected by Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Uh, Esau is representing the Edomites. And where it says that verse is quoted from Malachi, um, not, yeah, not Genesis. It actually, he starts in Genesis and then in the verse right before, and then he goes to Malachi. It's almost a before and after picture. And two nations are in your womb is from the first quote in Genesis. And then he's going on, fast forwarding 1,500 years, long after Jacob and Esau have died, and saying, um, this is the nation I chose, Israel. Jacob is the one I chose, not Edom, not the Edomites. And this is in reflection right after Edomites had attacked the Israelites. And so it's not just arbitrarily, I love one kid before he's born and right. not the other kid. It's, it's in the context of these two nations mm -hmm. and what God is accomplishing through them. Mm -hmm. So I've chosen Israel to be the seed through which the promise would come. So he's not talking about, I've chosen this child to be effectually saved right. and this child to be effectually damned, mm -hmm. which is the way some, not all Calvinists read it that way, by the way. It's very interesting. I've come across many who still are within the Reformed tradition who interpret these texts exactly the way I do. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting. You read through some of their commentary and they're, oh, I'm going, that's exactly right. That's and then at the very bottom, they'll say, but that doesn't change the fact that God's sovereignty and election is true and his choice of individuals. And so it's almost like they're beholden to their system and way of thinking that they'll interpret exactly the way I do, but then come to a different conclusion. And so um, I, I just point people to back up and to look at this with fresh eyes, take away the concept of God reprobating people before they're ever born, that kind of just remove that from your mindset and look at this with fresh eyes to understand that Paul is addressing, he's quoting Old Testament text uh, throughout this chapter, quite a few in fact. Look at what the text meant then when he's quoting from it. I'll have mercy on whom I want to have mercy, for example. He's speaking uh, from, from Exodus when he's talking about... Um, uh, how, how the Israelites had built the golden calf. And, and uh, he's talking about how Moses, he's talking to Moses in this whole situation there. And he's saying, don't, don't, don't kill them. And Moses is stepping in almost like Paul is in the first five verses saying, take me instead, you know, as the, as almost the Christ-like figure there, you know, I'll stand in the gap for them. And, 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 and that the response of that is I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. And meaning, meaning, I'll have mercy on Israel when it serves my purpose to have mercy on them, and I'll harden them when it serves my purpose to harden them. Who are you to question me how I use this hardened lump of clay, namely Israel, mm -hmm. which is reflection perfectly on Jeremiah 18, where sure. he tells them the same thing. Right. In the potter's house, mm -hmm. he, there's this potter, and if you go this way, then I'll use you for this purpose. And if you go this way, I'll use you for this purpose. Which Paul, by the way, uses the exact same analogy to Timothy when he talks about in the large house, there are many earthen vessels, mm -hmm. clay pots. If you cleanse yourself, you will be used for the honorable purpose instead of for the ignoble purpose. Same exact illustration he uses in Romans 9, but he still says the pot has some responsibility here mm -hmm. to cleanse yourself, meaning repent, mm -hmm. and you will be used for noble purposes. Well, the same is true of Israel. When they grow hardened and callous by their own free choice, not some sovereign decree that they couldn't help, but when they grow hardened and callous and God judicially, as an act of a judge, hardens them or blinds them in their rebellion so as to accomplish a good purpose through them, namely Passover, which, by the way, is exactly what he does with Pharaoh. He hardens Pharaoh to accomplish the first Passover. Right. In the same way, he hardens Israel to accomplish the second Passover. Mm -hmm. It has nothing to do with individuals being reprobated from before they're ever born, where they're born ultimately blameless because they didn't have anything to do with it, and they're going to hell and suffering a hell for something they have absolutely nothing to do with. Intuitively, I think we all know, even Calvinists, deep down, they go, that's not right. Yeah, There's yeah. something wrong with that. Yeah. And there is something wrong with it. The first 400 years of the Christian church didn't interpret it that way. Right. Eastern Orthodoxy has never interpreted it that way. Uh -huh. And this is a unique um, way of understanding that's following from Augustine 
who was a former Manichaean Gnostic, mm -hmm. and he was the first to introduce this kind of way of thinking into the church in the fifth century. And so it's questionable, and people should be willing to step out of their echo chambers and study this fresh and anew and see if yeah, it's really Yeah, I, I think the God. bottom line is, as you pointed out, that election here is not the election of individuals to salvation. It's the election of the nation of Israel to be the conduit through which the Messiah will come. And when you look at the structure of the Book of Romans, it couldn't be more clear because the first eight chapters are dealing, well, start with condemnation, then justification, then sanctification, then glorification. And then Paul stops um, right after that, that a soaring passage at the end of Romans 8, who will separate us from the love of God, right? You would think it would have been a perfect time to then go right to chapter 12, where he says, therefore, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, yeah. holy and pleasing to God. He doesn't do that. He says, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, what about Israel? If, if Christianity is true, what about my brethren? The elect. Who don't, yeah, yeah, who don't believe it, right? Yeah. And so he, he, he goes on a, a three-chapter sort of... Uh, detour to talk about Israel. And chapter 9 is Israel's past, chapter 10 is Israel's present, and chapter 11 is Israel's future. So the whole context of Romans has nothing to do with the election of individuals to salvation by the time you get to Romans 9. Well, especially when you consider the fact that the, the same ones who are hardened in Romans 9 are the same ones that Paul says haven't stumbled beyond recovery mm -hmm. in chapter 11, verse 11, and that could be grafted back in if they leave their unbelief. How, does, how is that a reprobate? Yeah, yeah, These are people yeah. he's holding out hope for, that right. he's, he's saying, yes, the rest were hardened, but they've not stumbled beyond recovery. They might leave their unbelief and be saved. That's his hope that his ministry to the Gentiles will provoke them to envy so that they'll desire to come back. And so how is that possibly the reprobate within the Calvinistic worldview? It and, just doesn't fit the and interpretation. The passage, I think, in Romans 11 that I think really drives this point home. I just had it here. Now it's gone for some reason. Stand by. Uh, here it is. Uh, he says in Romans 11, speaking of the, uh, the, the nation of Israel, the so-called elect, it says, as far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. Notice, if he was talking about election to individual salvation, how could they be enemies of the gospel? Yeah. They couldn't be, because the, the gospel is what saves. So he's bifurcating uh, the gospel and election here. Which, if it's election, individual salvation, you can't separate those two things. That's what it's all about. What he's saying here is that the Jews, as of right now, are enemies of the gospel. So, they, so they, they're not elect to salvation, but they are elect as, because of the patriarchs. They are elect because they were the nation through whom the gospel came. And, and, and so when you look at the whole context, Romans 9 is not talking about individuals elected salvation, but it appears Ephesians 1 is. Well, so some, some how do you may, deal with yeah, that? Some may Layton. think so, and often they, they begin at verse 3 or 4 okay. when it gets into the word predestination. But yeah. I always back them up and say, let's go to one in, verse 1 and 2 first. Well, let's look, look at it. Yeah, look at the audience first. Okay, Paul, this is Ephesians 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace. Stop right there. The faithful in Christ Jesus, right. the in him, the in Christ mm -hmm. is used over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. So who are the in Christ he's talking to? The faithful in Christ. These right. are people with faith in Christ. Right. That's the us in him that you're going to see throughout the rest of this. So just keep mm -hmm. the faithful in Christ in mind. Mm -hmm. And every time we see us in him later, 
Let's plug that in. And remember, he's talking about those who have faith in Christ. Okay. Okay. So he goes on to say, grace and peace to you, to God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then what is the longest sentence in the Bible? He goes on with, uh, it's with, coming up. with saying... Uh, with saying, yeah, he praise, like punctuation, apparently. yeah, praise to <laughs> God and the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Here's the sentence: For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with the pleasure of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves. And He goes on to talk about we have redemption sure, and all this. Sure. Comment on that. Go so, ahead. Yeah. Yeah, the us and him that it's referring to, the faithful in Christ. So he is predestined that the faithful in Christ will be made holy and blameless. Mm-hmm. Sounds kind of like becoming conformed into the image of his son, which is the other place where Paul uses the word predestination is in Romans 8, yeah. that he is predestined for those who love him and are called according to his purpose to be conformed in the image of Jesus. Mm-hmm. In the same way, he is predestined the faithful in Christ, to what? To be holy and blameless. Mm -hmm. And this is a choice that he made from the foundation of the world. In other words, it's not a new plan of God to engraft the Gentiles and to conform them into the image of his son. This has been a part of his plan from the very beginning Mm -hmm. that those who are in Christ Jesus, and remember Paul, an apostle to the Gentiles, has a predominantly Gentile audience when he's writing his letters to these different churches. And so when he's reminding them that you're chosen, that this is a plan from the beginning, as Ephesians 3 goes on to describe, that this 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 mystery that's just now being re- revealed is the engrafting of the Gentiles. It's always been from the very beginning God's plan to make them holy and blameless. And so what he's saying is he has chosen from the beginning that those who have faith in Christ will be made holy and blameless. They've been predestined for adoption. Go back to Romans 8, and you'll see that adoption is something we await for. We eagerly await our adoption, the redemption of our bodies, he says in verse 23 of chapter 8. What does that say? I'm still hoping for my adoption to be completed. In other words, I'm waiting for the redemption of my body when I take up residence with the one who has adopted me. And so in Paul's mind, adoption is something we're eagerly awaiting for, even as Christians. How do I know that's going to happen? Because God has predestined that to happen. And so when we understand predestination, again, it's a duck and rabbit thing. You're shifting your mindset. Because most people in our culture today, at least, when they hear the word predestination, they think of it Calvinistically. God has predestined certain individuals to believe so as to be saved. Mm -hmm. The Bible never says that, as far as I can tell. Mm -hmm. It talks about what God has predestined for those who are in Christ. Mm -hmm. We come to be in Christ through faith. And so here's an illustration. If you've got a field and there's a big fortress that God puts right in the middle of that field, and he says, before anything happens, he says to all the people in the land, if you get into the fortress, you will surely live when the storm comes because the storm's coming. If you stay outside the fortress, you will surely die. The storm comes, everybody who stays outside the fortress, they all perish. Everyone who goes into the fortress, they all live. Mm -hmm. Could you rightly say that all those who died outside the fortress were predestined to die? Yes. Mm -hmm. You could also say all of those inside the fortress were predestined to live. Mm -hmm. It it says nothing about God predestining who will and won't get into the fortress. Mm -hmm. It's simply God's destining beforehand. Here's your destiny beforehand. If you're in the fortress, the destiny is that you will live. If you stay outside the fortress, your destiny is to perish. But you're responsible as to whether you get into the fortress or not. Well, the fortress is Christ. If you come into Christ, God is destined beforehand that you will be saved. Here are the spiritual blessings. Matter of fact, there are seven spiritual blessings listed in that sentence. These are the spiritual blessings God has destined beforehand for those who are in Christ Jesus through faith. If you read verse 13, it goes on to tell you how you come to be in Christ. When we heard the message, when we believed we were marked in him. 
So you're not marked in him arbitrarily before you're ever born. You're marked in him when you hear the truth and you believe. So you're marked in him through faith. And so you're not born already in him. And even some Calvinists waver on which view they take with regard to when one comes to be in him temporally or eternally, um, just depending on the Calvinist on how they, they word that. And so I'm not trying to lump all Calvinists as monolithic in this mm -hmm. respect. A lot of them have various views on these different these different subjects but the the important thing is to understand that he's speaking about the faithful in christ and what spiritual blessings they have been predestined to so isn't it true however that when god elects to create a universe and he did elect to create this universe quite obviously he's electing the outcome because he knows what we're going to do but it's not against our free will. It's in accord with our free will. Doesn't Peter talk about in accordance with the foreknowledge of God? Now, technically, God doesn't have foreknowledge. It's written from our perspective. He, know, he has knowledge. Isn't it inevitable, Leighton, or unavoidable, maybe is the better word. It's unavoidable since God knows all things. He knows who's going to believe and who, who, who isn't, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So any universe he elects to create is going to turn out uh, in a way in which he knows it's going to turn out. But that doesn't mean he's taking away our free will, is it? No. And this, yeah. this steps kind of away from the theological, the biblical, yeah. into the philosophical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. Right, right. But I think it has to be noted that there are some, some things that philosophies are, are philosophical speculations are attempting to answer that the Bible doesn't necessarily give a specific answer for. And that's where you get into Molinism. Right. Um, that's when you get into the eternal, eternal now view of right, right, God that's right you know, proffered by Boethius and uh -huh. later Aquinas uh -huh. and, um, and C.S. Lewis, mm -hmm. uh, and it's this God outside of time kind of mm -hmm. perspective, uh, you get into determinism. Mm -hmm. I mean, determinism is a philosophical perspective, most held by Calvinist, which is ultimately that God knows it because he's determined it. In other words, mm -hmm. God's, in a sense, scripted by divine decree mm -hmm. everything that's going to happen, mm -hmm. and it's going to happen because he decided it would happen. Mm -hmm versus the way the other uh, indeterminist perspectives would hold to is to say the reason God knows it is because you chose it freely. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you'd have chose differently, he would have known differently. Right. Um, but you're still libertarianly free. You're sure. still, you have the capacity to, to say yes or no to the proffered grace of God. And, um, and so that, that's the distinction between those two perspectives. But and there's, a, there's tons of ink, obviously, that's been right. spilt on that particular topic and that discussion. And I'm not a philosopher by training. That's why I'll appeal to, you know, William Lane Craig and other philosophers, yourself and others who are better at making a case for the philosophical side for libertarian freedom versus determinism. Um, you know, I'm a more of a Bible guy to say, okay, what, what is this scripture actually talking about? What was right. Paul describing here? Right. And like we just went through with, sure. with Romans 9 or Ephesians 1. Well, let's, let's I don't let's, need those philosophical answers to, to get to that interpretation, but right. it's fun to speculate. Sure. As to some of well, those issues. let's go back to Ephesians 1 just to reiterate. You're saying that when he says... Uh, the term predestined in here, he's not saying I'm predestined, predestining you in particular to salvation. What Paul seems to be saying is that if you are in Christ, you are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, to be adopted. Exactly. Okay. So in, anyone who is in the fortress right. is predestined to be saved from this coming storm. Right. Right. Uh, anyone, well, the ark would be, sure. you know, the ark of the, or the, the blood post on the door. Right. You know, anyone who's uh, under the, mm -hmm. the, the, the blood on the doorpost has been destined beforehand that mm -hmm. the death angel will pass over. Mm -hmm. And so it's your, in other words, th this view, in my perspective at least, gives mankind all the blame. In other words, they're blameworthy for their rejection of the gospel. Right. Whereas on Calvinism, I can't see, I mean, now I know Calvinists wouldn't say this, right. but I can't see how God's not to blame. Right. 
um, and how man is held blameworthy uh, in, in, in any kind of a ra rationally just or righteous yeah, way. Yeah, if God makes all the choices and then blames us for choices we couldn't have made anyway, exactly. right. how is that a moral way yeah. of dealing if with the issue? If he's predestining, in other words, he's causally determining right. who gets into the fortress right. and who doesn't, right. then how can you call that just or right? And that's when Calvinists will often quote from Romans 9 out of context and right. say, who are you, O man, to question right. God? Right. Because if God wants to determine whether you choose him or not, then who are you to question a God who does that? And if Paul was saying that, then I would say, yeah, you got me. Uh, yeah, you won. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Paul's not talking about that. Yeah, I know, I know Calvinists recoil at this comparison, but basically, as I understand it, the hard five-point Calvinist God is Allah, okay? Because... Allah is arbitrary. Whatever Allah decides is good. Allah isn't essentially good. I mean, this is according to Muslim Muslim scholars, okay? Right. And even among Muslims, there are those who hold to, it's interesting, there's a split oh, yeah. between the Muslims on uh -huh. the free will versus determinism. Right. And the ones who are flying their planes into the building are the determinists. I'm not trying to, you know, but the, but they're these are the hardcore guys right, sure. and the determinist f f fraction of them. But uh, yeah, yeah, and obviously Calvinists will recoil at that yeah, quite a yeah. bit because Calvinists would never want to be compared uh, to the, the God of Muslims. And there are a lot of distinctions and differences. But what you're saying philosophically, philosophically is yeah. that the d determinism... The, position of Islam is similar to the the hardcore five. Yeah, because it yeah. makes God in to use the theological language, his uh, God is a voluntarist God, meaning he doesn't have an essence that is good. Whatever he decides to do is good. He's arbitrary it's good because he did it. Right. right. Yeah. And, and in, in the Christian God that that I think is is the, is the true uh, view of God is he's essentially good. He is the standard of good. There's not a standard beyond him. This this gets into the Euthyphro dilemma and all that. He is the standard, uh, and it seems to me. Uh, if the the hard five point Calvinist view is correct, then God is more like Allah than he is the God of the Bible or the God that uh, was the God of the first 15 centuries of the church. Well, C.S. <laughs> right? Lewis actually addressed that when he talks about, you know, if his black is our right, white and his good is our evil, mm -hmm. then we, we can only say we worship we know not what. Right. And we might as well be worshiping an all-powerful demon. Now I'm paraphrasing, but right. it's basically what he's saying uh -huh. is that we, we have to have some... Uh, uh, essence of what's good. Right. What, how do we measure what is good, what is right, what right. is righteous? And when you kind of throw out that concept and just say, well, it, it must be good because he did it, uh -huh. um, versus understanding that God's given us a conscience. He's, he's told us in his word what is right and what is good. And when we judge, judge goodness by that standard, and we understand goodness by that standard, then anybody who comes along and says, God does this thing that's evil, mm -hmm. that's demonstrably evil or demonstrably demonstrably wrong, maybe that's the wrong interpretation. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe that's not the, the interpretation we should go with, especially when there's another viable interpretation that's been held to by a majority of, of scholars and Christians throughout Christian history. Yeah, Why yeah. not at least consider it? Yeah, you and I have spoken about that before, that um, you could, I think, improperly, but it's plausible, you could interpret the scriptures the way the five-point Calvinists do. I think you have to ignore some context, as we mentioned. Yeah. Uh, but you could easily interpret the scriptures as you have been doing here. And if you had those two choices, why would you choose the one that basically makes God the author of evil and arbitrary when you could say, no, I think what in context, this is what Paul means here. And it doesn't run into those problems of making God evil or arbitrary. Why would you choose this one? That's what I'm trying to figure out. Yeah. And 
and each individual is going to be different yeah. as to what motivates yeah, them yeah, to yeah. choose one thing or another. And I think they're probably convinced that that's the correct exegetical methodology yeah, that yeah. led them to that conclusion. And they think they're therefore it must be the right, um, the right interpretation. I, I'm uh, at least that's why I chose it when I did is I thought sure. that's what the Bible is saying. Yeah, and yeah. I want to be, I want to be biblical. And who are you to yeah, talk back to exactly. God? And I want to be biblical. I don't want right. to just reject it out of emotional reasons. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to just say, well, it's just too difficult for me to swallow. You know, it's too hard for me to, you know, I, I want to be able to say, I want to be biblical, even if it's difficult. And so I can, I, I adopted that interpretation because I really felt that's what Paul was saying in those passages. It wasn't until I was introduced to the other side and began to understand it. And I could see both the duck and the rabbit, like I was saying earlier, I could see them both side by side. And now I was able to be, I think, objective to be able to look at him go both go okay which one did paul probably really mean here given all the other contextual issues that i've been discovering as i read through this all the verses that he's quoting from is paul eisegeting the old testament in order to introduce this newfound sociological perspective and uh, and and the history of it helped to convince me of it too realizing that augustine even by reformed scholars own estimation was the first to really introduce this way of thinking or this way of teaching through the scriptures, uh, theologically and philosophically from determinism. Um, and so once, once I began to weigh all those things and to see them, I began to be more and more convinced that the Calvinistic way of interpretation was just falling short. It was not, it was not true to the whole counsel of God's word or even to the historical development of these doctrines. Well, let's go to one of the other key components of five point Calvinism, the T and tulip total depravity, uh, the five-point Calvinists will say we're completely dead in our trespass and sins, meaning we can't even seek God or accept his free gift of salvation. Uh, God has to regenerate us first before we could even possibly accept him. How do you respond to that? Well, in a lot of ways, I try to concede as much as I can to what I agree with with the Calvinists and say, okay, let, let's just say that's true. We, we are dead in our sins. We need God to do something, don't we? So he needs to initiate something. Um, I think he did. I think that's what incarnation is all about. He sent Jesus. Uh, he sent the gospel to be inspired through holy uh, apostles who were inspired to write these words down. That's an intervention of God. Um, in other words, if left to ourselves, everything you just said is absolutely true. But God hasn't left us to ourselves. He has in, in, engaged us. He has uh, confronted us. He has brought life-giving truth to dead men. We are cast out of the garden. That means we're separated from fellowship with him. He could have just left us cast out of the garden and not done anything, but he didn't. He comes to us. He condescends to us. He in, that's what incarnation is all about. And he brings truth. Truth is powerful. It's the word. And we're responsible, meaning able to respond to that life-giving truth. And so when the scripture talks about, for example, Jesus saying in John 5, 40, you refuse to come to me so that you may have life. Well, notice what he's saying there. He didn't say, I've refused to give you life, regeneration, so that you would certainly come to me. Mm-hmm. In the mind of Jesus, it seems that you must come to me in order to have life. So he's saying they're dead. Yeah, you have a choice, but you, you're not taking it. Yeah. You'll have life. Right. Um, in John chapter 20, verse 31, it says, these things have been written, speaking of the gospel, these things have been written so that you may believe, and that by believing, you may have life. So once again, Yes, we're dead, mm-hmm. Calvinists. I agree with you. Mm-hmm. But what's the solution to that? The gospel, the life-giving truth. Believe so that you may have life. And the, the Calvinist order salutus, in my, the order of salvation in my estimation, is backwards mm-hmm. because they'll ultimately say that you must be regenerated, which mm-hmm. means to be given life, reborn, mm-hmm. in order to believe. Mm-hmm. 
so as to get eternal life is the way they'll interpret those verses. And I, I don't see that convincingly taught in that passage or any other. Uh, it doesn't seem to me that God is just arbitrarily or unilaterally giving people new life, causing them to believe, leaving the rest born in this incapacitated state where they're ultimately not blameworthy. If he wants all to be saved, why are some not saved if he's doing everything? Exactly. Well, and the reason they're not saved on Calvinism is because God didn't really want them. God didn't really send Jesus to die for them. And ultimately, they can end up in hell and say, I mean, legitimately, and I'm not saying they would say this because Calvinists always say, well, they wouldn't say that. They don't, they can't even talk back to God. Kind of I'm saying legitimately, they could have the excuse. I was born unloved by my maker. I was born without the capacity to believe his truth, even when it was made plain to me. I was born without the ability to desire that. I couldn't want him because of the nature he created within me from birth. I have no control over that. That is the best excuse, Frank, I can possibly think of for an unbeliever, being an unbeliever. God's chosen me for this. He created me for this end. And there are actually some former Calvinists like Derek Webb, who is the former lead singer for Caveman's Call, who I grew up listening to because he would write songs on Calvinism. And uh, he has some famous songs that support Calvinistic doctrine. He's become an atheist now, and he actually cites this. He actually says, I don't know why people are trying to convince me to become a Christian again, because it's all up to God. I'm like Lazarus in the grave. If he's going to, if he's chosen me, and he he even says, if this is all real, I hope I'm chosen. I want to be chosen. I want him to convince me of it. Because what has he done? He's abrogated his responsibility over to God because he's, he's convinced Calvinism is biblical. And he's ultimately saying, and one of the lyrics in his song, tragically, is maybe this is all real and I'm just not chosen. And so he, what he's ultimately done is said, you know, I believe the Bible does teach Calvinism. And if it's true, maybe I'm just not elect. And that's devastating to me yeah. because I think the Bible reveals that God has provided salvation for every man, woman, boy, and girl. Mm-hmm. And that they're responsible for whether they choose to put faith and trust in him or walk away. Mm. Yeah, the atonement, the L in TULIP, it's limited only in the sense that not everybody accepts it, but it's available to everyone. Exactly. Right? That's the extent. Yeah, yeah. So because people reject God, uh, that's in the sense it's limited, but right, it, it goes like the, to everybody. The, like Jesus talked about the serpent lifted in the desert right. in John chapter 3. Same thing. Uh, you look to the provision and you will be healed. If you don't look to the provision in faith, you're not going to be healed. But it's provided for everybody to look to. So whose fault is it if you don't look to the provision in, in, for healing? It's yours. But God's provided it for, for everyone. And so, too, when, when Christ was lifted up for the sins of the world, he was lifted up and provided atonement or healing for the world, for all people. If they refuse to look to him for, to faith, for, in faith, that's their fault, not a lacking of the provision. Not a, not, a, not a lacking of grace, not a lacking of God's love, which ultimately, and, and though Calvinists may not want to say it that way because it's not as palatable and doesn't seem as, as biblical, mm-hmm. that's just the, the natural, I think, logical implication of their worldview is that ultimately God hasn't provided for those who end up in hell. When the Calvinist says that we're dead in our trespass and sin, is, is he getting that, do you think, more from Ephesians 2, where... Paul says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. Is that where that comes from? Sure. And I, and okay. I would just say I agree with that. But okay. how does he make us alive? Well, Colossians 2.12 said we're raised with him through faith. Right. So how does he make us alive? Yeah, that's the next passage. By grace through the faith. The famous passage. Right. <laughs> you know, it is by grace you have been saved. That's 
that's yeah. that's what it, with what he gets into. And God raised us up and has seated us with with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order uh, in order that in the coming ages we might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not from yourselves; it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Now they'll try and say that that means that the, the uh, faith is a gift. That the faith yeah, is the gift when it's right. the salvation that's the gift. Yeah, and there's a quote from even Calvin's commentary where yeah. he actually says that. He actually says it's actually salvation by grace through faith right. is the gift, right. all, not, yeah, a, not be, just faith. Because in Greek, the the, the tenses don't right. match exactly. if you're trying to say faith is the gift. Exactly. But I, yeah. And again, I try to concede as much as I can to Calvinists right. just to help them along. Just say, okay, it's not enough just to say faith is a gift because we could say, yeah, faith cometh by hearing and hearing cometh from the word of God. And so my next breath is a gift of God, but I'm still responsible for how I use that. So my ability to reason, to think, to have faith, to have trust in something or even him is a gift from God. But that that's not what your claim is. Your claim is that it's a an effectual gift given to some people and withheld from all others. And so what in that verse says that? Even if I concede with you that faith is individually given, is faith is a gift from God. How does that prove that's an effectual gift from God given to some people and not everyone versus it's a gift like breath, like common grace, like the ability to reason, to think I can put my trust in Allah and fly a plane into the building, you know, hoping to get 72 virgins. That's a lot of trust. It's a lot of faith as you will. You talk about the faith of an atheist. They're putting a lot of trust in the scientific, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, concepts of evolution and everything else. They're putting a lot of faith in that. Their ability to, to do that is a gift from God, but they're putting their faith in the wrong thing. They're not putting their faith in the person of Jesus Christ. And we believe they're going to be held responsible for that. Why? Because they were actually able to respond to the word, the truth, the incarnation, the light that comes from God. Doesn't the word dead here in this context, Leighton, I think maybe the Calvinists may take it this way, correct me if I'm wrong, that uh, unless God regenerates us, we can't in any way accept his free gift. That's what they 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 think the word dead means here. When do you think the proper interpretation of dead means that we can't in any way merit favor with God and earn salvation through works? Right. That's how we're yeah. dead because we've already sinned, so we've broken our relationship with God. That's the sense in which we're dead. It's not the sense that we can't perceive God or we can't receive what God, the gift that God is providing. We can do that, but it's because since we're dead, we need that. Exactly. But it's not that we can't perceive it or receive it. That's they. they, That's what they seem to be thinking. It means the way I put it in in my book uh, was we're dead more like the prodigal was said to be dead. He was lost, now he's found. He right. was dead, now he's alive. doesn't okay. mean that he couldn't come to his senses and return he home. He did come he, to his he senses. He obviously did. Yeah, right. right. So the deadness is the idiomatic use of being separated in the far country due to rebellion. Much like the church in Sardis. He says, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and renew what remains. Even Calvinistic commentators don't interpret dead there, necros, the same word, mm-hmm. to mean that the church is unable to respond to his warning. They don't interpret it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, because they understand the idiomatic use of deadness there is to say you're separated because of your rebellious behavior. And the same is true of, uh, of us. We're not born 
uh, dead in the sense that we can't respond to his life-giving truth. We're dead in the sense that we're out, outside the garden. We're separated due to our rebellion. We're, we're in the far country. What do we need to do? We need to humble ourselves, as the Bible says over and over and over again, humble yourselves and draw near so as to be reconciled. The appeal of God to be reconciled is sent to all men. Even Calvinists believe that's indiscriminately sent to all men. The question is whether all men can respond positively to that appeal of reconciliation. We as provisionists or non-Calvinists, we say, absolutely. God's provided for all. Anyone can come. If they choose not to, they're blameworthy for not choosing to come. Right. If God could. makes all the choices and they can't choose him, how can they be blameworthy? It just yep. doesn't seem to be just. The, the answer is, who are you to talk back to God? Right. I mean, <laughs> which, I mean and which, which you already demonstrated, that's not necessarily the context of Romans 9. Now, right. again, if you go back to the context of who are you all man to talk back to God, is that an Israelite saying because he's hardened and calloused in his rebellion, because he's grown self-righteous and rebellion, and that gal, now God is blinding him from the truth of the, the Messiah so, as to, so that they cry out, crucify him, and brings about the Passover. That, in my mind, is the guy who's saying, he's saying to, who are you, old man, to talk back to the Creator? Because you're a hardened Israelite who's being used to bring about the Passover. And what the Calvinist says, no, that, that's, that's a reprobate. Um, that's, that's an, uh, or or a, a free will Arminian who's crying out, who are you, God to reprobate somebody. In other words, doom them from the womb. Who are you, O oh God, to choose somebody for destruction who you give no real responsibility to? And if Paul was actually answering that objection, again, like I said, we, we would have to become Calvinist. But you have you can't just assume that's the interlocutor in the mind of Paul. You've got to establish it right. using the whole of Scripture, which I don't believe that they've significantly done or sufficiently All right, last, done. Last topic. I think we're predestined to do one more topic here, <laughs> Let's uh, go for it. Leighton, and that is uh, sovereignty. That's such a big issue, it seems, with Calvinists. And uh, R.C. Sproul would say about God's sovereignty that God is in control of everything. If there's one molecule out there that, you know, <laughs> he doesn't have control over, then he's not sovereign. What is the proper definition of God's sovereignty? And is it somehow taking away from God's sovereignty to suggest that human beings have libertarian free will? Yeah, I think Calvinists have, have wrongly interpreted the word sovereignty. Matter of fact, there's actually on my, my blog site, I quoted from an, another Reformed thinker who actually is correcting other Reformed theologians mm -hmm. for their misuse of the word sovereignty. He says we actually should be talking about meticulous providence mm -hmm. when we talk about the determinism of, of how God works, not sovereignty, because the word sovereignty is about his, his right to rule. Uh, his kingship, in other words. And so when we talk about a king or a ruler has the right to rule his nation however he wants to. And if he wants to micromanage everybody, then mm -hmm. he has the right to do that. Right, We're but he doesn't saying, have to, right? Yeah, right. But, yeah. he, but that's the freedom of the sovereign mm -hmm. is he can give certain rights and abilities to his subjects mm -hmm. as he chooses to. And so he can be in control without necessarily being controlling because he's giving a level of control over his, to his subjects. Mm -hmm. And so in the, in the same way, we can say that God sits in heavens and does whatever he pleases, um, as, as Psalm 113 says. But it goes on to say that the, the heavenlies belong to the, the, the Lord, but he has given the earth over to man, which is why we would say there are principalities and rulers in this, the darkness who are they're actually called authorities, and they're, they're, uh, they're, they're given reign to, to rule until the judgment, until the, the final day when God makes all things right and, he, and uh, we establish the kingdom, which is why we pray, God, let your will be right. done in heaven as it is there on earth. Why would we even pray that if determinism is true? Right, right, right. Because everything's being done exactly the way God determined it to be in heaven and on earth and exactly the same way. So why would God instruct us in the Lord's Prayer to say, Lord, let your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven? Because we want God's will to be done because 
some people aren't doing God's will. He, he gives us the dignity of causality that we can actually exactly. affect time and eternity. So, so it comes back to sovereignty, how you define sovereignty, what you understand as sovereignty. An illustration I've used in my book as well, just to help kind of people to see this. And I, I know others have used this what, as well. What's the name of the book, by the way? Oh, The Potter's Promise okay. is the first book. And okay. then God's Provision for All is a Defense of His Goodness okay. uh, is my second book. Right. And so both of them touch on similar topics. Right. But but the, uh, the, the issue of, of sovereignty, as I say, I, I really do believe that we have a higher view of sovereignty than our Calvinist friends do. Yeah. And the way I illustrate that is that if you're walking down a boardwalk and you come across a man playing chess, and he's playing both sides of the chessboard, mm-hmm. and you're, what, he moving the white piece and goes over and he moves the black piece. Sir, why, why are you playing the both sides? The guy controlling the white's an idiot. What did he do that for? <laughs> why are you playing both sides of the chessboard? And uh-huh. he says, well, it's the only way I know how to ensure my victory if I play both sides. I have to control both the, the black and the white pieces in order to ensure that what I have destined will come to pass. It's the only way I can really do that. You know, okay. You go down the boardwalk a little ways and you see another chess master and he's sitting there playing the best chess masters in all the world, as far as the eye can see, and one after another, he's just beating them, one right after the other. Right. Which one are you going to go home and brag about? The second one. And you would say, why is he more sovereign? Because he's better at chess. He's better than all his opponents. He's not controlling the moves of his opponents. He's just better than they are. And that's my view of sovereignty. God is taking on opponents that, yes, he created, but that's why he's so much better than they are, and they can't handle him because he's just so much better. So our view of sovereignty is not in any way impugning the character or the goodness of God by suggesting that he's controlling evil or that he's causing evil or that he's the one who's moving the hand of Satan in these kinds of ways, but instead saying, no, he's able to counter and redeem and bring good out of those free moves of his opponents to bring about his good purpose and his plan, which is exactly what I think Romans 8.28 and Ephesians 111 is talking about that God's bringing about working presently, actively working good, redeeming good, despite the free evil choices of creation. And I think that is a much more beautiful view of sovereignty mm-hmm. than what the Calvinistic system. Yeah, it brings more glory to God in that way, doesn't it? That, I would think so. That I he think, is, yeah. he has that capacity. I like to say it this way, that I think God is so sovereign that he can get his will done through our free will. That's a great way to put it. Right. Uh, yeah, he, he can do it. He's, yeah. he's that good. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. And if, I mean, you could even use an illustration with a parent too, right? I mean, to a certain extent, you have authority over your children. And if you were to try and micromanage them forever, they would never make moral choices of their own. But you do have the capacity to back off and give them free will so they can mature. And God does that for us as well. And and when you do that, that doesn't make you less sovereign. No, you're still sovereign. Right. It doesn't make you less strong. Like your muscles just all just, you know, because you give your daughter, your Uh three-year-old daughter, whether the choice to whether she eats her vegetables or not doesn't make all your muscles just shrink up. Uh-huh. Like, and that's sometimes the accusation, that if God does give freedom of choice, he's lost his sovereignty or has right. lost his power. Right. No, God has the right to use his power however he chooses to use uh-huh. it. And if he chooses to allow you to have a free choice, that doesn't in any way lessen him um, or his power or his goodness. Um, and, and helping people to see that, that this not the false dilemma or the false dichotomy that sometimes is painted. Either God's controlling everything deterministically mm-hmm. Um, or he's just this weak, namby-pamby, wringing his hands kind of God that just doesn't know what's going to happen. And he's just uncertain with everything and anything could happen, you know, and we just don't know. And we're all this, you know, 
it, that's the way it's painted sometimes. And right. of course, if those are my two choices, I'm going to go with Calvinism, right. you know, yeah. because I want this powerful God that's uh -huh. controlling everything. But those are not your two options. Mm -hmm. there, there's, I think, a better option, a biblical option right in the middle of there where, where God in his sovereignty has given us the freedom of choice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, uh, and in, in another sense, too, we could say that... Um, I know people think that since God is sovereign in the Calvinistic way, that we couldn't have free choice. That would be a contradiction. Um, but in reality, just because God knows what we're going to do since he's outside of time, we're going more philosophy here now rather than this, you know, just the scriptures, doesn't mean we don't have free choice. I mean, knowledge does not necessarily imply causation. I, we, we can know the sun's going to rise in the east tomorrow, but we're not causing the sun to come up in right, the east, right? right? Just because God knows how we're going to do or what we're going to do doesn't mean he's causing us to do it directly. It doesn't mean he's taking away our free will. And some people think that that's, I, I don't know, they, they seem to think that since God knows what we're going to do, we don't have free will, which does not follow. It does. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that's and because the philosophical difficulties with that, I mean, that's why... Uh, so much ink has been spilled over the years with the the omniscience of God, and one of the reasons that open theists exist, yes, you know, is because yeah. the way they're trying to deal with that same problem is just saying, well, God, maybe He doesn't exhaustively know things in the way traditionally we think He knows right, them, right. and they're trying to to deal with that problem that way. And and you know, Boethius and C.S. Lewis and others outside of time that God knows all things because He's God, mm -hmm. not because He causes it, mm -hmm. but because He's at all places at all times. Um, he exists at all places at all times. Um, I think the way C.S. Lewis talked about it is if you thought about the timeline, um, you know, drawn on a page as a pencil, that, that God would be the paper. You know, <laughs> that, that he's, he's at all places at all times. Right. So he knows all things because he is at all places at all times. He's omnipresent, mm -hmm. and therefore he's all-knowing because he, he knows it in the uh, eternal now. Mm -hmm. um, it, can I understand that? No. <laughs> yeah, it's beyond my comprehension. But any philosophical worldview that comes along and ultimately has the implications that we've we've just got through discussing with regard to God not really loving and providing for most of humanity, the reason people going to hell because Jesus didn't really die for them, and they're not even really re rejecting an atonement because they never had the atonement. And they never, they never had, had the ability to reject right. it. They exactly. were predetermined to reject that, it. That, yeah, yeah, that to yeah. me, a philosophical worldview that leads to those kinds of implications and conclusions are not, it's not a biblical philosophy, and it's not a philosophy that's supported within the pages of Scripture. And just like I don't think open theism is either supported in the pages of Scripture, because I, I do think there's too many passages of Scripture about God's knowledge of all right. things that I would reject the, the interpretation of my open theist friends. And, and, um, and because I'm nice to my open theist friends, just like I'm nice to my determinist friends, some people accuse me of being, you know, uh, an open theist in this re regard. I, I, no, you can be friendly to both sides. Yeah, sure, you, know, sure. you can have, I, I, you know, I have people on my broadcast that, that hold the different philosophical perspectives, but that, that's why we have these discussions. That's why I have the EPS, ETS meetings and things that we go to. You have different mm -hmm. groups getting up and giving their philosophical explanation to this or this. And I love that. I love the ability to iron sharpening iron, sure. to learn from these things, yeah. to, to grapple with these ideas, to hear uh, much more intelligent people than I ever hoped to be kind of diving into these issues. But going back to always the authority of the scripture mm -hmm. to say, this is my guide. This is what I want to go to as my authority. Um, and, and to, and to always say, I, I want to make sure I interpret scripture in, in a way that doesn't impugn the character of God or doesn't give anyone that excuse that they might be looking for to reject God, mm -hmm. i.e. maybe God didn't really love me. Right, maybe right. God didn't choose me. 
I, I don't think anybody should have that excuse. Leighton, what's your website so people can learn more? Uh, on this topic, Soteriology101.com. Uh, you can even just type in Leighton Flowers in any Google search and it would come up because obviously there's a lot of controversy about this particular topic. And so that's where you would find it. But um, yeah, you can find the, the blog site. Uh, like I said, I've got a couple of books. Um, the Soteriology 101 podcast and YouTube broadcast is... is uh, more popular than I ever thought it would be. How often do you post there or podcast Probably about there? weekly. Um, okay. We, about a, a weekly broadcast. Some of them are, are shorts that we put out from clips from other broadcasts. Um, you were on the show not long ago, and, and uh, that, that was very helpful because I think, and that, that's really what I'm trying to do is platform more scholars from othering, other worldviews. I have Calvinists on too, but I, I want people to hear the differing perspectives to help them to, to objectively view the duck and the rabbit to make a, a good, uh, a, you know, intelligent, well-informed decision with regard to these, uh, these you, you know, it would be interesting um, if we could arrange it maybe would be to have someone, you know, who's a Calvinist, a friendly Calvinist who wants to debate some of these issues. Maybe we debate Romans nine and Ephesians one. Sure. Yeah. You know, if you, you, if you, you be know, my debate yeah, partner or no, I'll, I'll be the moderator. Oh, okay. What do you say, you know, and see what happens. We've done some of that. I yeah. debated uh, Joel Webin, uh, uh -huh. debated a couple of guys. I would don't recommend the debate down in Houston because these guys were really like almost even hyper Calvinist, even according to a lot of my Calvinist friends, these guys were more extreme. Yeah. Um, and then James White, I've debated as well uh, uh -huh. years ago. That was my first debate. And so right, I've, yeah. I've, I've polished a little bit better uh -huh. since then. But at the same time, um, even the content of that debate, I think, was uh, at least demonstrating what Romans 9 was really talking about sure. with regard to who the interlocutor is, who, who the what, what the lump of clay is representing right. the nation, just like we already talked right. about earlier. Um, but I think those debates can be helpful. I think open discussions like you and I are having right now are even more beneficial. Right. If you were a Calvinist or a Calvinist was sitting right next to me like this and we were having open discussion, maybe with a moderator to make sure we were given, you know, fair opportunities. I think that could be a, a really beneficial thing sure. because um, it, it's not so stringent that you're you know, not able to engage each other. Like, wait, when you said this, wait, what did you mean by that exactly? Oh, no, That's the not... formal debates uh, are not as uh, helpful as an interactive debate yeah, where agree. you can question one another and interact. You know, the dual and speech debates, that's formal debate. Yeah, There's yeah. value to it, but I, sure. I think the, the interaction is really where people learn and can sharpen one another. Yeah, and that's why I've always you know, invited James White or Joel Webin or other Calvinistic friends. Chris Date's been on. Um, I invite him on the program because I just want to have that open sure. dialogue yeah. because I, I think we can learn to disagree without being overly disagreeable. Right. I think we can have cordial conversations with each other respectfully, uh, walking away saying, sure. oh, we agree to disagree, love you, brother, but that's you know, right. we, we see things differently. Exactly. And, uh, and that, that's a part of maturity in, in the body is to being able to disagree with people you don't, you know, uh, that you, you worship with them still and you believe the essentials of the faith, but uh, you spar with each other about the, the right. deeper doctrines of, of grace. All right, friends, it's been great having Leighton on here. Leighton Flowers, check him out online, Soteriology 101, or if you Google his name, you'll find him. There's so much more to, that we could cover, but we want to keep this at a manageable time. Yeah, give us give it the name of the books again. The Potter's Promise and then God's Provision for All. Both can be found on Amazon. Perfect. All right, friends, we'll see you here next time. God bless.